Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm William Hosea. Tonight, we'll be bringing you two insightful interviews with, with local personalities. A little bit later on in the show, we'll hear from notable local authors who will discuss the upcoming Black Authors Speak a public celebration of our Black local literary community set to take place on July 17th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Monroe County History Center. But first, we have invited attorney Alfonso Manns, one of Bloomington, Bloomington's longtime African-American practicing attorneys. He is a 1964 graduate of Fisk University with a Bachelor of Science degree. He also graduated from the Indiana University Maher School of Law in 1972 with a doctorate of jurisprudence. And during his studies, he was declared a Martin Luther King Jr. Fellow of the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Foundation. And that's not all. Al also founded the IU chapter of Black American Law Student Association and later graduated from the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs with a Master of Public Affairs in 1975. He has also done further graduate studies in the Department of Political Science at Indiana University Bloomington and was affiliated with the Vincent and Eleanor Olstrom Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis. Attorney Manns has served as a general and appellate practitioner of law throughout Indiana for the last 35 plus years with consistent professional distinction. And with that being said, we are proud to welcome Attorney Alfonso Manns to bring it on. Thank welcome you. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I appreciate the introduction. Well, it is it is truly uh, an honor for us to have you, and um, you have meant so much to this community, and you have done so much for this community, and you have such a, a lengthy bio that to read it would take thirty minutes. Um, but uh, that just speaks to your to your wealth of wisdom and your passion for serving the community. Uh, Thank you again for joining us. We, we just had a, a few questions to get things started. What was it like uh, setting up practice in Bloomington, Indiana um, over 35 years ago? Uh, what was it like? That's a very interesting question. It was basically a process in which I had gone through uh, the community as uh, first as a director of human relations, which I was uh, hired uh, as a member of the faculty and administration uh, through my work with Chance, Vice Chancellor Herman Hed uh, Wells, Herman, Herman Hudson. Uh, at the time, of course, Herman Wells was Chancellor of the University and I fortunately got to know him uh, at some of the meetings that we had. Actually, my wife, Dolly Mann, started the practice. She started out of uh, 1976, I believe, or 78, with a box, a shoebox. She was a former employee at uh, one of the uh, one of the factories here in Bloomington, who had paid her way through law school. And out of that box, she got she had a file of, of uh, former worker employees who came there for services. I actually started 
practice back in the 1980s together with, with her. But the experience I had in the military service and uh, in my work with the university, I was able to, in my experiences with the National Labor Relations Board, who I worked for during the summers, has given me a pretty good idea of what it was like to process and litigate cases and to organize the way I did. I also had the fortunate experience of meeting Jim Regester, who I became familiar with I, when I worked on the master's degree uh, at, with the, my work done regarding the utilities uh, board who was trying to uh, prepare and, and design a treatment plant here in Bloomington, Indiana. And that was a very, very valuable experience to understanding how government works and some of the problems we have in dealing with uh, technical problems and democracy itself. Al, did I hear you say something about working with the military? Well, yes, I did. Uh, I was uh, I served in the, uh, in the United States Army uh, between the years of 1966 and 69. I was an officer who was uh, executive officer of the platoon leader, military intelligence officer S1, S2, that is to say, sorry, and executive officer. Uh, those roles, uh, during those roles, I was able to participate in representing and prosecuting soldiers for alleged violations of military law and also set on some court martials. So I became familiar with the idea of litigation. I also took a course while I was there from the University of Maryland, which had an extension course in uh, business law. Now, Clarence knows that I, I absolutely have to go there with my military background, but I've been knowing you ever since I pretty much came to Bloomington. Never knew you were a veteran. Now, you have a story to tell about uh, when you when you first started practicing law in Bloomington, and that was a long time ago. But to be honest, I'm more interested in what it was like in the '60s as a black man, a black and a black officer, even more so, practicing law in the military. What was it like back then? Well, I was not a member of the uh, Army uh, uh, Corps of, of uh, Lawyers. I was just simply an officer. Okay. At that time, during the Vietnam War. There was a shortage of officers in the, in the in the judicial corps, so that they used officers in different capacities. We we okay. used as investigators. We had to do these various things. But nevertheless, you talk about the '60s. That's a very important period in my life because I went south to school. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but I went south to school. Why would any student? Why would any young person want to leave the north who had pretty good schools? go south to school. I had a mentor. You always have mentors in our lives who are going to help us, who have an ear, sincere interest in helping young black men. And we have them, and young men should always seek them out. Because I did a very good one by the name of James Poole. James Poole was a journalist for the local newspaper, the Cleveland Dealer, Cleveland Plains Dealer in Cleveland, Ohio. But he was also working with the YMCA there that worked with young men. And he was the one that got me interested in going to Fisk University the United Negro College Fund. When I was accepted at Fisk, I had no idea what it was like in the South. My mother was born in the South, she was born in Plains, Plains, Georgia. Her whole family of 13 members of family was there. They all, most of them came North. But what I learned was the experience of, of what it was like to live uh, where I had uh, an unknown. In other words, I came into a community I was not familiar with 
but learned from those there that we had a very serious problem in the whole question of segregation. That experience came from a person by the name of Diane Nash, who I met one morning, or I used to meet with regularly at lunch. And that lunch, at breakfast, I'm sorry, breakfast. We meet there in the morning for breakfast. And one day she explained to me what the whole theory was about concerning integrating the Dutch Congress in Nashville, Tennessee, which was against the law. I'm there for a, with a scholarship, not wanting to run the risk of losing that scholarship. I was concerned, but it came to her explanation that this was a very serious concern that affected my life and the lives of my children, future children. And so she convinced me to get involved in the sit-in. And it was, I've only sat in about two or three sit-ins uh, over the, my years, but it was quite an experience. Then I met John Lewis, who was a very vigorous uh, fighter for civil rights. John Lewis would go door to door to every door in the, the dormitories and knock on them and ask students to participate in the movement. I was always impressed with him. I even had the unfortunate time to tell him, John, I can't help you today because I've got an examination to take. And so I was a chemistry major at that time. So we had to make those kinds of decisions, but I don't regret them at all. You know, uh, um, Attorney Mance, um, your, your chem chemistry degree came in handy because in reading your, your profile, I see that your research in 1975 for director Gary Harding, the utility board of the city of Bloomington, was, that was headed by Bill, Cook, by Bill Cook during the administration of Mayor Frank McCluskey. It led to the discovery of PCBs. Now, a lot of people don't know, number one, the origins of PCBs or what it stands for, but it's polychlorinated biphenol. And I remember when I was a SPIA student in my master's program, I did a study on the PCBs, especially as they related to Bloomington, Indiana. There were a couple sites that needed to be cleaned because they had a, a, a pattern or trend of cancers uh, in the city of Bloomington. And, and I know the Westinghouse, former Westinghouse plant was a part of that. And it was, there were some dumping sites in and around the city that were discovered. And it sort of put Bloomington on the map, uh, sort of in a negative way, but share with us, if you will, your involvement with that whole discovery of PCBs and the mitigation of, of that situation. Well, I didn't know specifically about PCBs at the time. This, my, my, my paper that I wrote and researched and wrote was derived from the idea that they wanted someone to research the problem they were having with funding with the federal government and the state government for the for the sewage treatment plant in Bloomington and to determine where that plant should be. Well, I, what I discovered was that a lot of the facilities in Bloomington, like Westinghouse and electric companies and others, were dumping their affluence or had were thinking about it or had been dumping their affluence in the community. And there were other institutions who were designing themselves to go into the round the round the uh, Lake Lake Monroe. And of course, the environmentalists was concerned. The environmentalists were concerned about the possibility of dumping influence into Lake Monroe's water and ruining the water there. So when my, when my research turned out that they, these facilities, organizations, if the city was going to allow this to happen, they should know exactly what they were dumping in through their influence into this, to the, to the water system. And therefore, that is what led to the discovery 
the city then looked into that and discovered that PCBs was being dumped in and it had a negative effect on the water system. And that's how it was, that's how it came about. And I remember back during that time that um, it caused quite a scare because this oil uh, that contained a lot of capacitors at Westinghouse, and as you said, there were, they didn't know where it was being dumped. Haulers would come in as, as specified and, and as mandated to sort of haul that off, but they didn't know once it left their door where it went. And um, it, it's, it's one of those things that PCBs as sort of um, a byproduct of the capacitor production yes. and Westinghouse was this major uh, manufacturer of capacitors and reclosure breakers and protective equipment mm -hmm. that this necessitated appealing to the federal government to be placed on a super fund site to get funds to come in and sort of clean this whole thing up. So mm -hmm. uh, listeners can only imagine uh, the hard work that you put in working with a team of people to bring that to pass. So I just want to publicly thank you for that because that was, you talk about an environmental nightmare. That's right. That I, was I, it. Yeah, the Bill Cook was the director or he was the head of the, he was chairman of the utilities board at the time. And Jim Regester was the attorney for the city at the time. Mm -hmm. So I had communication with them and I had communication with some of the members of the City Council, as well as Gary Hart at the time, who was director of the utilities uh, department at that time. And it was, it, it was, I enjoyed the work because I was able to meet my requirements for the master's degree, but also find a way to make a contribution. I also traveled around and visited with the various sites in which they were contemplating to place the, the treatment plants. Um, and it, it was uh, very interesting. I think that was, well, it basically led to the fact that Jim Regis then eventually invited us to join his office, and we did in 1980. For those who are listening, we're having the distinct pleasure of speaking with longtime serving um, attorney, attorney Alfonso Manns. Uh, we affectionately call him Al Manns, and, and attorney Manns, is that okay, or are you going to oh, sue me if I use, okay. No, that's great. All right. That's all I was, I'm done by that. <laughs> I just want to clear the air real quick, but uh, no, but thank you for, for elaborating on that. And time doesn't really allow us to get in, in real depth, but just know that PCBs put Bloomington on the map. And as a student in SPIA, that was one of the things we studied. It was uh, one of those, hey, you know, here's in your, in your own backyard, literally something to study. And so uh, our epidemiologists and other professors there had us do projects in that regard. But Moving on, as now you're a practicing attorney in the city with your wife, uh, Attorney Dolly Manns, you have helped so many people. Uh, and that's one of the beauties of serving 35 plus years. Everyone may not come forward and say, yes, Al Manns, help me because of perhaps the particulars of their particular case. But can you sort of share with us uh, just the range of clients that you've had over those years? Well, um... I recall Violet Taylor Farrell at one time telling me that all the cases she had involved were um, divorces and uh, criminal cases. But uh, when we started our practice, yes, we started off with criminal cases to one of the biggest cases of this community was well publicized in a um, homicide case to which we represented and tried. Uh, but we wanted to expand our practice as much as possible. We did have some advertising. And, and Mr. Regester taught me probate. 
Now, that was a new area, and he taught me probate. And then, of course, you get into civil litigation as well. So we were able to expand our practice from different areas. And so, and I've enjoyed that because having been diverse in my work, uh, I enjoyed it much better than being just uh, specializing in one area of practice. Now, the, the criminal area is interesting. I've, I've practiced that all over the state of Indiana in different communities, south and north, east and west. And I've seen the different various courthouses across the state of Indiana. And I just love doing that. But there is serious work. A lot of work I've done is involving blacks and whites. It doesn't make any difference. But I've particularly tried to assist black uh, black defendants because to some extent they go into environments in which they are the minority and they need good representation. But it doesn't make any difference what you're in, we're in. We try to do the best job we can for our clients. Right. And along the way, you, you did have some, and you and you may still have some political aspirations. I know that uh, you have, any in the city may recognize your, your name right off as one who has been a candidate for uh, several judge positions in the city of Bloomington. Uh, can you, do you care to talk about that at all? Well, you know, I have participated in that process because we need uh, minority candidates to run for office. I've visualized the judiciaships would be non-political. To a certain extent, it may well very well be, but my approach was that lawyers should be based upon, their actions be based upon principles rather than politics. Nevertheless, I'm very happy that we have at least two minority judges on the bench who are very quite qualified. And if I have contributed in any way to their election to that office, I am very happy with that. Of course, I knew Vi from Moon Drive Teleferro for years, and well, she was encouraged to go to law school by Dolly, my wife, and she did, and, and she became the first, my understanding, uh, black person to become the bench. The, but there's a process that goes on, a learning process. I'm not of age now that I'm interested in any kind of political position at this time in my life, but I still want to continue doing something that would benefit the community and service of whether it's my practice, which right now I do, I practice about 50% of the time of the day. I'm kind of semi-retired, but I work hard, it's hard, just as hard, but and I enjoy it. And I'm doing some other things that uh, will con- hopefully will contribute to the community, provide some kind of service to the community. Keep myself active in other words. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And and I'll just, I'll, I'll add one more thing. During turbulent times in the city of Bloomington, you've been there. And there have been some cases that have been very sensitive. Um, and you cut off on me. I, I couldn't hear you. I couldn't hear you, your last comment. Okay, I, I would say that you've been very active um, with several sensitive cases in the city of Bloomington. Yes. And one of your colleagues, Judge, former Judge Viola Talaferro, uh, when she graduated from law school, uh, not soon after, I believe, she took on a tremendous case, sort of a yes. blockbuster case. And you know, to have this caliber of, of individuals in our judicial system, both as lawyers, as judges, uh, people have been well served in the city of Bloomington. And I just wanted to, to go on record as saying that. Um, William, did you have any follow up to that? Uh, not necessarily to that, but I wanted to uh, ask Al about something else. You've pretty much, uh, you've entertained a few professions along the way to where you are now, uh, librarian, truck driver, security guard, laboratory assistant, and as you mentioned before, a 
a platoon leader in the in the U.S. Army. So when what made you decide to roll all of those up and pursue a career in law? Good question, well, right? Yeah, it was. Well, I had decided that I had done the two years as an one year as an enlisted man and two years as a, an officer in the United States Army. And uh, my commander was interested in me continuing my career in, this, in the military service, and I had given some, some serious serious thought. But at the time, by that time, I had been married, met Dolly, and had married. She flew over to Europe, and we got married there, and had a military wedding, and then we had a son born to us at that time. So I had a choice of staying in the military and then or coming home. But I had applied to law school. Uh, these I think three law schools, I believe. And uh, I just had to make a decision. I was not satisfied with what I saw going on with respect to the Vietnam War. That concerning my wife. And I had a choice. I was a young man who had grown up without a father. My father and my, par my parents were divorced, and I grew up without my father. One thing I did not want to happen, the possibility that my son would grow up without his father, that being me. So I made that decision. Once I was able to get into law school, that's the route I was going to take. So uh, that's how I ended up applying to law school and being accepted and becoming a law school. Let me ask you. Uh, if if you had words of wisdom, which I know you do, for someone who's thinking of putting a shingle up, uh, having graduated from law school, but wants to put a shingle up in Bloomington, Indiana, what advice would you give them? Well, I, I think that you need to have much contact with your other colleagues and, and learning uh, how to do things and being a part of the local Bar Association as well as the State Bar Association. There are many ways that one can do that. One can do that through a contact in the law firm, volunteering your services, also get yourself engaged in the community in different ways. Uh, and generally, I think that most lawyers will talk to you. I, I remember many lawyers who came to I asked questions about, not when we just got started, other than Mr. Regester, who would give me advice. Ken Nunn, I recall, and Applegate, others who I just called on the telephone and asked for advice and they gave me advice about how to do certain things. The idea though of being practicing your own is a very challenging exercise. You have to make enough money to live by, get the same right. time you can to compete with other lawyers in the community. And Bloomington is a wonderful place to stay. That's what was really great about us staying here. That we raised our children here because it was a very fine community from which we could build, help build, and contribute to. Glass Devane is one of the first persons that we met in the community, and we appreciated her contributions over the years. So, and those relationships, you know, others do not, you don't lose them. And so being a kid from, being a guy from a big city, inner city, and coming and living in a small community was very good for me and my family. Okay. You know, there, uh, speaking of um, landmark cases that put Bloomington on the map, one comes to mind that I also researched while in SPIA, and that was uh, the topic of passive euthanasia, and that's when the Baby Doe uh, case uh, went to high prominence in the city of Bloomington. And for those that may not know about it, which perhaps a fair number may not, it was a 
a child born with um, some abnormalities and the parents made a conscious decision to withhold medication and food as a form of passive euthanasia. And I'm not sure if you consulted or advised on that, but do you recall that? And uh, would you like to comment on that at all? Well, I remember something about that, but I was not involved in that. Okay. But these are but these kinds of decisions uh, are very serious because they involve life or death. Right. And but who decides that question in those circumstances? Should it be the parents or the government? Should it be the parents and their doctor and their God or the government? So we have to make a choice who's going to make those decisions. Government is going to be involved because of public policy reasons to protect the child, perhaps. But the mother and father also have the concern for that child as to whether or not that child will survive in the community and be a benefit to itself and to others. I unfortunately have not been placed with that situation to make that determination. I think today we are facing the issue of what's called abortion. Right. And that's a question between, I think, my own view, even though I, I may not, should not say this because this is a political program, but I have my own views about this that I do not wish to share. But nevertheless, um, I've done some work in adoptions and other kinds of things. And I've talked with a lot of parents who are concerned about what they should do in certain situations. But parents need to be advised, need to be told, or not told, but shared information that they can use to make certain kinds of decisions. And um, I can appreciate that because a lot of things become very complex. Things that we on a day-to-day -day assume are just simple matters really can turn into a very complex matters as you just, as you described here today. Absolutely. As you so, think back, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, please. No, I was gonna say, uh, as we sort of wrap up this, this portion of our uh, broadcast, as you look back over your 35 plus years and all the involvement both as a practitioner and then uh, in other capacities of assisting people and consulting people about the law, uh, what one or two things will you cherish above everything else? Aside from Mary and your lovely wife, Dolly, okay? So <laughs> we, that's a given, okay? But but what else would you cherish above all else? Well, I, you, you ha I have to put my children in there. All right. Because uh, they have kept me going over the years. When I've gone down, I've been able to get myself back up, get up in the morning and go to the office and work. Because I enjoyed my work. And I've seen the transition from using a typewriter to a computer and different right. technologies of which I, mean, I must have owned about 20 or 30 computers over, the time, over these years. But, but I have enjoyed uh, working with other persons in the community and different activities with organizations such as the Bloomington Black Business Professionals Association, the NAACP, the Kiwanis Club, uh, and other associations in which I'm able to contribute and to learn from them how community, how our community works. Uh, I've not been in government per se, but I've been to hearings and meetings and activities and the festivities that we've enjoyed in Bloomington. Bloomington is a diverse community of a lot of good cultural things that goes on. If you look at the newspaper, I don't see how anyone cannot come to Bloomington and find something to do. I mean, you know. And when I looked at the Seminary Park and I see the people who are who are poor and homeless, it reminds me how 
that is probably the most diverse. I've heard a colleague of mine, Guy Lawson, say he found it to be the most diverse place you would find in Bloomington because we have poor people of all races involved here in our community, which we must somehow survive for in some way. I'm very fortunate to have a colleague of mine to join me in these years. Uh, his name is uh, William Morris, and he's uh, joining me in my office, and he wants to very much use the office as a social justice center. And I agree with that. I'd like to expand on that kind of concept, provide services for those who need services and various kind that we can provide for them. So the providing service is the next thing that I think that I would cherish for anything else. Well, what a way, uh, what a way to end this uh, by, by mentioning Brother William uh, Morris, a colleague of yours now in the practice of law. I will state as we wrap this interview up that uh, Attorney Manns is a person who believes that diversity, education, and hard work are the keys to generate new ideas to build a better, prosperous, and just society for us all. And on that note, we want to thank distinguished Bloomington attorney Alfonso Manns for joining us this evening. His long and proud service is appreciated by his clients and the citizens of Bloomington, Indiana. Thank you, Attorney Manns. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Wade. At the top of the show, we mentioned that we would be hearing from notable local authors who will discuss the upcoming Black Authors Speak, a public celebration of our Black local literary community set to take place on July 17th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Monroe County History Center. Okay, William, we're, we're going to pause. Pause recording. Yes, we are. At the top of the show, we mentioned that we will be hearing from notable local authors who will discuss the upcoming Black Authors Speak, a public celebration of our Black local literary community set to take place on July 17th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Monroe County History Center. In 2018, Black Authors Speak featured local authors in a panel discussion and public book fair. The celebration of our local community continues in 2021. Black Authors Speak returns with an outdoor showcase on the lawn of the Monroe County History Center on July 17, as William mentioned. Writers of all ages will share their talent and their craft through short readings and performances. Joining us to share more about this are Bring It On segment producer of Dark Past, Bright Future, Liz Mitchell, Audrey McCluskey, faculty emeritus from the IU Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies, and storyteller, scriptwriter, and actor, Gladys Devane. Ladies, welcome to Bring It On. Everybody's thank muted you. right now. Hey, thank you. <laughs> they're, they're being very polite right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'm excited to learn more about this. So in 2018 was the first uh, attempt to bring local Black authors in a public forum to talk about their craft. and. And I'm sure you had eager ears to hear, okay, how do I, how do I write? How do I, what disciplines do I need to, to learn to be an effective writer? So I'm going to go ahead and allow every, every one of you to go ahead and comment on that. Well, okay. I'll For me, start off, I'll, I'll start off about how this came about. Um, I was on the board with the History Center thinking of ideas, how to be in, more inclusive to let the Monroe County community know about all of the black talent here in Bloomington. And so one of the ideas was Black Author Speak because I had read Charlie Nam's book. I had read um, uh, Audrey McCluskey's. And so 
I th there's more out there. And so the History Center has always been gracious enough to uh, accept my ideas and go for it. So we did it and it was very, very successful. So this is our second go around because different people has asked, when are you gonna bring that back again? So I twisted Audrey's arm and she agreed to help uh, facilitate this on, on the 17th. And then we've got new people that are coming in. I'm very excited about Gladys Devane's book and also the uh, high school students that are coming out with a, a three-part book series. They're gonna introduce their first book. So we're really excited about the lineup for Black Authors Speak. Thank you, Liz and Audrey. I, I'll invite you to go ahead and comment next. Okay, well, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, Elizabeth, I didn't have to do much twisting of my arm because I always feel that anytime there are books involved and an opportunity to share knowledge, I'm, uh, I'm all in. And so this is the second edition of what we did before. The difference this time though, last time we had a subtopic of black authors in the age of Trump and social media. And uh, we had different authors to talk about their work, but more generally to talk about the nature of writing, just as Clarence, as you have mentioned early on about the craft itself. This time with the outdoor uh, performances, we will also have music, we will have refreshments, and we hope to have a larger audience. And so we think that this is going to be something that people will, will enjoy, and also something that perhaps we can en enlarge and do other kinds of things that promote public literacy about the Black experience. So we see this as something that has much potential, and we are just getting started. And then Gladys, uh, if you'll care to, uh, to contribute to that. Your, I think your question was how, was how do you write or what, what was the nature of your question? Absolutely. You, and you get the award as for being the one that paid attention. <laughs> While everyone else was on a different tangent. And as an author with discipline, you have to stay on the course. No, it, certainly. And I welcome all their comments. But... If someone comes to this event they, and, and they have this yearning to write, they want to pour it out from their mind onto a printed page or onto a laptop, whatever uh, medium we use these days, what's your advice? Um, I've heard everything from force yourself to write so many times, so many hours or whatever a day to outline it first and then put meat on the skeleton. But, but what advice would you, would you have for them? The first thing I would say is different people write differently. And there is no one way to skin this cat. Uh, so you have to discover for yourself the best mode for you. Um, I would say probably the most important thing is to write about things that are near and dear to you, things that you really inspire you, things that you have a passion for and know when you are writing that you're not going to write it and that's it. You're going to have to revisit that work over and over and over to tweak it and refine it 
and 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 listen to it and live with it for a while before that final product is what you want it to be. Thank you, thank you for that. And and surely I was I was only playing when I chastised the other listeners because I have to live in this community and I just want to go on record as uh, <clears throat> not not throwing stones. But for those that write poetry, um, how different is that from writing novels? And if, uh, say, Liz, if you want to start there and we'll go around in the same order as we did before. Liz, you're muted. You're muted. There you go. Okay, there. Okay. Um, I am really just starting out to write, thanks to Gladys and Daniel Bruce, uh, this during COVID, uh, trying to write the, the uh, X scenes from next plays. And so I learned from them, uh, Gladys is right, if it's a subject or a person or something you know and you're passionate about, there are days that it just flow. And then there are days that it just doesn't. And so uh, for me, at first I found it difficult to do that. And I would always get with them every week. And this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. I'm not saying it got any easier for me, but if it's something that you're passionate about and you love and, and know the subject, there's no need writing about something you don't know. Uh, I think that helps. And about writing a novel, uh, Gladys or, or maybe even uh, Audrey can tell you about that. Liz, you know, I honestly don't know how you do it. Here, here's another project that you're involved with, a recurring project. Um, you said you did this how many years ago? Uh, what, what Black Arthur Speak, you yes, mean? Yes, yes. Uh, we started in 2018 is the first time we did this. Okay, so it, it seems to me you're going to be doing this again. And I wanted yeah. to let you know that when I, when I posted your flyer on my Facebook page, I, I got quite a few responses to it, even from people outside of Bloomington who were interested in it. They were disappointed that it was in Bloomington and not closer to them. But uh, I wanted to ask you um, if you have any authors from outside. Oh, well, don't answer that because we already said local authors. Yeah, it's local. Okay. Well, can you tell us the names of some of the other authors uh, uh, that, are, that are participating in Black yeah. Authors Speak? Uh, we've got some youngsters coming up. I'm I can't wait to read their story. Taylor and Brianna O'Neill. They're 14 and 15 years old. They're tennis players. South High School, and this uh, on the 17th, they're going to discuss their first book of a series of three. And we have Gladys Devane, who's coming out with her first book. Come sit with me. Charlie Nams, Dr. Charlie Nams, he's, I love reading his things. Amrita Myers, Jacoby Williams, Jacinda Townsend, Brianna Hogue, I believe she does children's stories. And we have uh, uh, Audrey McCluskey. We will have you by Peyton Womack. He's a saxophone player and we're gonna have refreshments. It's It's, to be a nice, nice Saturday evening downtown Bloomington. You know, you really should uh, reschedule that because I'll be out of town on travel, on vacation. 
But I wanted to ask uh, Gladys or Audrey if you care to give us a glimpse into your book and what it's about. Well, before, before I do that, I want to piggyback on the previous question about what do you write and how do you write? Mm -hmm. I think some of the best advice that I've ever heard about writing came from the renowned Toni Morrison. And Toni Morrison said, not only should you write about what you know, but you should also write for what you want to read. Mm -hmm. Write what you want to read. And she saw in her life, especially in the early 70s, that there were no books that talked about black women and black girls. And so those are things that were missing and she wanted to fill a gap. So I think the motivation can come from inside, but it also should reflect something that you want to contribute to the world that is absent or that you think you have a particular vision and insight into. And also as a scholarly writer, you have to spend a lot of time doing research. <laughs> and research is very important. But I try to also do research tender writing, but also I write poetry occasionally as Gladys knows, and I also yeah. write editorials and things. So I try to I try to expand the boundaries of writing. And I think to comment on what Liz said, learning to write is that you put your foot in all different kinds of genre and see which ones that you really go more naturally to. So in my own, and now getting to your question, which is it's kind of long-winded, your question about what I will share. Well, I haven't I totally uh, decided which book I'm going to talk about. I'm going to have uh, forgotten, forgotten Sisterhood, but I also thought that people may want to know something about some of the other books that I have written. And so I haven't thought it through yet, but I'll, I'll probably bring a couple of books, but I'll only talk about one. I may even talk about the Richard Pryor book because it's funny in a lot of ways and you know how funny he was. <laughs> and so uh, I, I'm going to decide on that in a, in a couple of days, but we are all looking at, looking forward to it. It's going to be a great day for all of us, I think. And as far as what I plan to share, it's really difficult. My book, Come Sit With Me, is a book of, that consists of seven poems, nine stories. And each poem, I mean, each, each entry is introduced by an explanation of how I got there. What this, ish, what this poem or what this story is about and how it was conceived and how I got there. And the stories are preceded by a quote that introduces that story. For example, one of my favorite stories in the book uh, is entitled, What Little Missy Didn't Know. And that, that story started off as like a two paragraph story that was introduced in, um, on stage um, in a program that I did, that we did, oh, quite some years ago. And it was based on a photograph that I had seen from a, a book, a, a coffee table album uh, for African-American, African-American life the, the, the um, let me see if I remember the title of the, the title of the album was um, 
one more river to cross. And it was a picture of this little old lady sitting slouched over a book with light shining in from the window on her book. And she was in 1800 garb. And she looked to me like a slave. And I thought to myself, slaves weren't allowed to read and write. What had she risked in order to learn this skill? And so I conjured up in my mind what someone like this would have to go through in order to learn to read in an environment where you could be killed or beaten severely just for wanting to learn to read. Um, the first, in fact, the first time this was done as like a, just a two paragraph kind of concept, I, uh, Audrey McCluskey did it uh, on, stay, on the program that I was talking about. Then from that, I took this and I did, developed it and I reworked it and I developed it into a 20, 25 minute story being told by this woman uh, of how she learned to read. Um, and I just, that's one of my favorite, uh, but I mean, I, it's probably the one that I will, will share with the audience. Just to mention, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, that, was, uh, that was really a, a nice uh, challenging role for me too. And I enjoyed all of it because you had to take the demeanor of someone who was slipping and doing something behind the back of the master. And so you had to be very careful about hiding books and not uh, turning on or letting on that you were actually literate, you know, not use a big fancy word <laughs> that, that would kind of bring suspicion to it. So I thought that was a challenging, uh, all those uh, part of a larger work. I thought it was a challenging role, uh, role to do. And I'm glad that Gladys is uh, developing it further. And for those that have just joined us, you just heard Faculty Emeritus from the IU Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies, Audrey McCluskey. And you've also heard from Gladys Devane, who is a storyteller, script writer, and actor. And then, of course, our Bring It On segment producer of Dark Past, Bright Future, Liz Mitchell. And they're here talking about the upcoming July 17th Black Authors Speak um, event that will take place outdoors at the Monroe County History Center from 5 to 7 p.m. Uh, ladies, um, I've encouraged a lot of people to write, both um, when I say counseled individuals or been in conversation with individuals. And to be honest with you, a lot of them would love to write, but their past have been painful. And some of them have been survivors. Some of them have led, uh, lived harrowing lives. And as for uh, a sort of a, a reason of sort of just healing from some pain in the past, I've encouraged them to put pen to paper. Um, but also if they come to this event, because I'm going to encourage, there are a number of people that I'm going to encourage to come to this event. What is your thought as far as writing under a pseudonym and then being able to bear all, or some feel that they must be true to themselves and just bear it all. But what about writing under a pseudonym? And I'll let Liz start and then we'll go Liz, Audrey, and then Gladys. I think it's a personal choice um, and they must have reasons that that's what they choose to do. 
so it's up to the individual uh, how they want to do that. I was surprised to hear Stacy Adams was an author under synonym. And so uh, it's she got the word out and now people know who she really is. So I don't have a problem with it. Most important thing is to write. How you get it out there is just a matter of a delivery system. Some people, and I think this is something that we have, we touched on in the last, the last time you did this uh, program, is the effect of social media on self-expression. Somehow people feel that social media is an intermediary. I mean, there is actually even a movie now being produced. It stars a black woman, by the way, that's based on a Twitter feed. Did you all hear about that? It's called uh, Zelle. And it's just in, in theaters today, or well, this weekend. And so that can be the beginning of a process of writing, you know, having a blog or using Twitter or whatever. But the main thing is to write and uh, be very generous with yourself. If you don't like something that you wrote, just write it again, you know, cause that's what we call, you know, reviewing and drafting and, and rewriting. So I think rather than just focus on the anonymity cause most people on Twitter use, uh, don't use their full names anyway. I think it's more important to, to just write and express yourself and you will know the right time when you want to reveal who you are. So I don't think that should be an impediment at all. Mm -hmm. And I agree with, with Audrey 100%. And um, you were talking about writing on difficult subjects. Um, I, I think I do agree that if you can write about it, even if you don't share it with anyone, um, it's, it helps you, it helps you analyze and figure out where you are and what you need. And that's an important part, I think, of writing. In fact, in, in my book, Come Sit With Me, there's the story entitled, The Least Among Them. And Danielle asked me, do you feel comfortable? It's really autobiographical. It deals with it deals with me discovering that my firstborn was severely handicapped, and 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 how um, living with a, a, a child who is severely handicapped, the influence that he has had in the family, and and how the family has learned from him, um, and I, I think it's important to it for me. It's important to share that part, you know, of my life um, that was not so easy, because someone reading that story might gain something from having read it. Um, I don't know that I could have shared this 30, 40 years ago. You, you come to know as you move through life what you're ready to do and what you can you know, what you're ready to take on. Uh, and at this point in my life, I'm ready to share that story. Liz, you wanted to say something? Yes, um, I started uh, as a young teenager or preteen with journals. I don't know if you all girls used to get a diary. I don't know if they still do that. But when I was participating with uh, Delta's Academy, one year I went out somewhere and bought diaries. I think that's a way for 
young girls or even boys, I'm not going to exclude them, is to start writing things in, your, in, in a diary or keeping a journal. It doesn't have to be every day, but you can even look back on those things later on in life and go, oh, I can make this into a story. So I do have, uh, never shared them with anybody, but I have a lot of diaries, which when I got older has turned into journals. Uh, I like to travel. I take a journal and write things down. It's always fun to look back. And every year something happens in your life. We're all still alive. So there are, are times in your life, whether it's with your health or with some self people that you're close to, you write things down. And then later on, you can always come back to them and, uh, and write them if that's what you choose to do. You know, Liz, I should have just jumped out there ahead of you because I was going to ask about journals. Uh, I met my wife a little over 20 years ago and she was writing journals in. To this day, she's still writing in her journals. She has stacks and stacks of them. I don't know if she's ever going to turn it into a book one day, but I guess you just confirmed what I was going to ask. Uh, is that a good way to get to start your book? I, I would think so. I, had, I was never on rising to write a book, but I've always enjoyed uh, my diaries, I look back at them now and thought, oh, you silly little girl, especially when I was 13 years old. And you, you get to see your 13-year-old self. And so even uh, my first trip to Europe, every day I'd write a little blog and I can go back and that's going on eight years ago. And, and even now, uh, I've started some for each of my grandchildren. Uh, this is the day you were born. This is how I'm feeling today. I can't wait to you're two and three and, and that kind of thing. And I, I have a journal, a little diary or journal for each one of them that on their 18th birthday, hope I'm here, I'll give it to them. Those that are listening, this is just a taste of what you can expect on July 17th when you come to the event that will be at the Monroe County History Center, Black Authors Speak. Um, and as we sort of land this plane, believe it or not, we have about three minutes remaining. So that's about a minute each. Um, the big question we didn't ask, how do you get published? And how do you uh, get your book distributed out there for people to read? And I'll start with someone who is, is well familiar with that. And I'll start with Audrey. Oh, there are so many ways in, to, to publish today. When I first published my, my very first book, you had to write a proposal and send it around to the established, and this was academic publishing. So it's a na more narrow market. And so they would send out your proposal to different scholars in the field, and they would say whether it's worthy or not, or tell you what you need to do to improve it. And so it was a long process. I think today is much easier because there are more, more venues for publishing and especially self-publishing. You could even publish on Amazon. Amazon has a publishing wing and there are so many other different kinds of self-publishing. So I don't think that there's an impediment. You just have to have like the, the, the girls who we are going to have at the at the book fair, the teenage girls, her, the mother told me how they got involved in publishing and they will share that story. So I won't, I won't share it right now, but it's very, it's very different from what it was years ago. So that should not be an impediment either. All right. um, if I can, I, I'm gonna just jump in and say that if anyone has anything additional to add to that, we may let that be the last comment on publishing because time, um, 
time and tide wait for no man or woman or rider. So we're at that point. Uh, unless anyone has anything additional, it only means we have to bring it back and we will promote this event going forward. Uh, so with that, we want to thank our Bring It On segment producer of Dark Past, Bright Future, Liz Mitchell, uh, Dr. Audrey McCluskey, faculty emeritus from the IU Department of African-American and African Diaspora Studies, and our very own beloved who's been interviewing with us for years, uh, storyteller, scriptwriter, and actor, uh, Mrs. Gladys Devane, or Dr. Gladys Devane, for joining us to share more about the 2021 Black Authors Speak, set to take place on July 17th from 5 to 7 p.m. outdoors at the Monroe County History Center. Anything that I did not add in that invitation for people to come out real quickly, uh, Liz, that I need to just want to make sure people know that it's on the 17th at the Monroe County History Center? Yes, and you got the time five to seven. Five to seven. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have any ideas for this program, we would love to hear what they are. Send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. Along with your ideas, if you have an event or happening, such as Black Authors Speak, that the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly, as William said, to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about tonight's guest, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone, assistant producer is yours truly, consultant and WFHB News Department director is Cade Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontant. Original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.